What is going on and welcome to the first episode of All Things Music, hosted by me, Ryan Katz. Um, this is my first episode, so please uh, be kind. Um, doing some guinea pigging here with different uh, things as far as recording and everything goes, but hopefully this comes out great. Uh, just a little background about the podcast before I get into our special guest today. Um, this is supposed to be one of the only podcasts out there that actually dives into the technical aspect of music talk. Not just, you know, what's popular, what's trendy, this and that, who's better, who's not better, but it really dives into, you know, genre analysis, uh, you know, business aspects of music, uh, just different comparisons, different things to get your mind digging a little deeper into what is the music realm. And it covers all genres. We're going to have people on here from, you know, the EDM world, metal, country, pop, uh, got punk, we got all kinds of stuff, so it's going to be great, and I hope that you are a long-term listener, um, because this is something I will be doing hopefully weekly for the foreseeable future. Uh, with that being said, uh, a little bit about myself before we begin. Uh, I am the CEO and founder of Liquid Sound Records, who sponsors this podcast, and I'm also the rhythm guitarist of hard rock slash metal band Audience of Rain, um, and uh, you know, that's Pretty much it about me. So, without further ado, let me introduce our guest for the inaugural podcast. This is Joe Lanky, who I'll, I'll let him introduce himself. Go ahead. Hi, Joe Lanky. Um, I don't even know where to begin, man. First of all, I want to ask: Are we allowed to swear on this yes, podcast? Totally Fuck, allowed yes. to swear. Okay, great. <laughs> um, well, let's see. DJ and uh, musician and artist. Uh, I guess that's how He's I would He's being end. humble. <laughs> uh, he was one of the original Pittsburgh DJs, uh, went by Plus FX at the time, and after that, he joined the band Mushroom Head, which I'm sure many of our listeners know. We're not going to really dive into that as much today as more of the DJ aspect of things where he started and, and, and kind of comparing what uh how the scene has evolved or some would say devolved in the last 20 to 30 years um so uh you know my my first thing to you is when you well you know basically what got you to start djing above any other format well i think originally what i first started being into music and, and i was totally into metal music from the from day one and um, I played guitar when I was younger, and then I played bass in a band, and uh, never really went anywhere. It was more just messing around in a garage with buddies and stuff like that. And then when I went to college, uh, I went to art school in Pittsburgh. Um, I met a couple of guys, and they were talking about these parties that were going to be at warehouses, and I was like, man, that sounds like fun. I'll go check it out, and went to my first rave and was completely blown away by a warehouse full of people listening to music that I had never heard before in my entire life. It was completely new to me and I just fell in love with it and immediately found the guy who was throwing the party and said, you got to teach me how to do that. And that's kind of how I, I got into it. And explain to some of our younger listeners what the difference 
is you know today with with raves it's at clubs it's at you know different kind of venues generally the same types of bars different kinds of things but explain like what was such what was so special about having it at a warehouse in the early to mid 90s where uh, it was more of a, a grassroots type of movement it, it was so at that time it was so underground and and nobody had really even heard of it, it i remember once I got into it and I worked with uh, Joel Bavacqua, who is DJ Deadly Buddha, um, he was teaching me how to how to spin and um, he was like, hey, I'm going to throw a party. So here's a stack of flyers. Go out into uh, Oakland, you know, Pennsylvania and pass these out at Pitt and see if we can get some college students to show up. And I remember trying to explain to these people, well, this is what's going to happen. You see that number on the bottom? You're going to call that number. And that number is going to take you to, and they're going to tell you to go to this spot. And then when you get to that spot, they're going to give you a map. And that map is going to take you to hopefully the final spot. We're not sure how many stops along the way you'll have to be. And we had to do that in the early days originally because some of the parties we were doing were not legal <laughs> at the time. They were they were breaking into warehouses and figuring out how to hook the power up and throwing down a party. And and what's crazy is that now you can promote on Facebook for months and share and share and share and never get the volume of people that we used to get just by handing out flyers and talking to people about it. Yeah. Exactly. And I learned that, you know, a few ways. I used to throw some raves myself and it was just, you know, it's not the, there's something about grassroots promotion that just is timeless. No matter what kind of technology we have available to us, at the end of the day, face to face, you know, conversational promotion, ways to like really engage people about whatever, but about shows in particular is like one of the most effective ways that I've seen. And I think part of the problem today is that, you know, I I say my generation and, and it includes me in some aspects, but it, it, we're we're such a instant gratification generation we we don't like to put in the work to to to, to do certain things <laughs> yeah. and and see certain things and i think that you know if i had to guess and you can tell me if i was i'm right or wrong but i think when things changed is when my generation started to get interested in the music not necessarily the culture as much but mm -hmm. you know it was the music and then we kind of took over and decided to do things a little bit differently. Does yeah. that sound accurate? Uh, yeah. Yeah. To a certain extent, the culture definitely has changed. Um, and it, it, I think it was in the nineties, you know, once in the late nineties is when it started to kind of take a turn into two thousands, you know, and that's when all of these festivals and stuff started to happen. And that kind for me, that was kind of the end of rave was these festivals and stuff. And we had a lot of problems along the way with, you know, 60 minutes doing stuff about, oh, this kid went to a rave and he OD'd and, you know, this kind of stuff. And um, so that was, an, that was an issue, you know, and that kind of tuned people out to it. And they were like, well, it's just drug parties. It's this, that, and the other. And it, it was never about that. For us, for me, and for the group in Pittsburgh, I know was we were kind of like the new modern day hippies at that point. We were kind of like you know, we were techno hippies, man. We we loved the unity of it and the family of it. And to be able to bring a thousand people in a room and everybody in there is your friend. And you just wanted to party, man, and have a ball and listen to the music. And nobody heard the music. You know, every time you went to a rave, you were hearing new music that no one has ever heard for the first time. 
And that was always cool. And I think that's interesting. It's an interesting point because today, you know, with Spotify, Apple, and all those things, music is, is available to everyone and, and almost all music, you know? Right. So if you're that diligent of a person, you probably have heard a lot, almost everything. It'd be really hard to go to a rave and be like, you know, oh, I haven't heard this one. Plus, it seems also today everybody plays the same remix of, of this track and that track because it's trendy and because it gets people dancing. But um, one thing that I'm thinking about during this is when those warehouse raves were thrown back in the 90s, was it a priority for the person throwing it to make money or was it more just, I, you know, I don't mind eating some cost to have a great time type mm-hmm. of thing? We never made money <laughs> ever. If anything, you know, a lot of times, what you know, Joel, the way he threw parties a lot of the times is when we started to get legit where we were like, all right, well, we can't do this because we're all going to end up in jail if we don't figure out a way to do this. And that's how we started going to the Irish Center. The Irish Center was just a big kind of open gymnasium where we could could rent it for the night, talk somehow talk these guys into letting us have it. And it was under all the guys that, you know what, man, it's going to look exactly the same way when we leave, you know, and if it doesn't, we'll fix it and whatever. Um, So, yeah, I think that Joel, the first couple of parties, borrowed money from his grandma in order for us to get sound and lights and everything. And then if we ever made any money at the end of the night, that just went into the next party. Okay, that makes sense. And, And, you know, it seems silly illegal raves you know some people who don't really know about the rave culture illegal raves like that's you know they're you know illegal is one thing doing drugs at raves but raves themselves being illegal but but you know did you ever know anybody who got in trouble for throwing these illegal raves and if so what was their their punishment or their uh you know the consequence of, of that type of thing there was a lot of guys that were east coast guys you know coming up uh, you know Frankie Bones, uh, he was the Godfather man. He he started he started rave on the East Coast for sure. And uh, Nigel Richards is another guy. He was kind of got poked for on sixty minutes about throwing parties and stuff like that. And I think both of those guys at one point in time have gotten in trouble for that kind of stuff. But a lot of times they would just get a trespassing ticket, you know, or you'd have to pay a bunch of fines and stuff. As long as you know, nothing was getting broke or, you know, they never, they didn't know what to do with us because a lot of times if you could get out of there, <laughs> you know, and get your gear and get out of there, it was great, you know, but there was a lot of times of obviously you're not going to be walking out of there with giant subs and stuff like that, you know, so sooner or later somebody's got to fess up and go, well, yeah, this is my stuff, but I don't know who threw the party, man, <laughs> you know, they just asked me to come, you know. Right, exactly. So it was that kind of stuff. So there was never really anything that I, anyone that I knew of that really did any hard time or gotten any real trouble over it. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, and I would be remiss before we continue, you know, we should mention, because it just happened yesterday, uh, Keith Flint of The Prodigy has passed away. Uh, yeah. Very sad news for the electronic community. Um, I was supposed to see him in May at Sonic Temple, and again, I am disappointed. It also happened with Chris Cornell a few years ago. So um, you're a jinx. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually funny because my stepdad texted me. I like texted him because he's a Prodigy fan, and I said, you know, this happened, and I was supposed to see him. And he goes, man, you're a jinx. You need to buy a Justin Bieber ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I'm like I know. Well, well, well. Yeah. So um, sorry, Justin. I, you probably don't listen to this podcast. Whatever. <laughs> um, so. You know, I, I wanted to mention that because he, you know, not just him, but the whole, the Prodigy, Prodigy was like one of the groups that I admired because they were able to take 
you know, what a DJ does, but but kind of evolve it into an entire band um, live performance that unfortunately I've never been able to see. But I've seen, you know, videos and it's it's just the most one of the most impressive things. And I don't know if that'll ever be emulated again. They're really the the first uh, live act, live techno act to kind of go mainstream. You know, there were a lot of other bands out there that were doing that and playing underground parties and stuff like that, but they were really the first band to kind of go mainstream with it, you know? Um, and th- again, that, you know, in those early days, you know, it was like seeing a live act was like, how, how are they going to do that? Because nobody even knew how these people were making this kind of music, right. you know, with the, the old equipment and everything. So, yeah, it was it's sad, sad day, man. Definitely. Um, so I want to move on to something really interesting that you have experienced um, throughout your entire musical career, and that's the evolution of how to DJ. You know, right. uh, when you started, it was all vinyl records. Yeah. And when I met you, you were doing DJing on vinyl or a controller. You kind of skipped the uh, CDJ era. I did completely. You you, you came back to it, which is great. We'll get to that. But, you know, the first thing is, you know, when I was a DJ, I learned on a controller. And, yeah, sure, it was hard. I'm using quotes. But I got the hang of it really quick. If you're a musician, it's pretty easy to get a hang of a controller because you've got the the computer screen to aid you. You've got all kinds of digital, uh, you know, triggers and digital uh, help to, to aid you along there. But... When you like yourself, when that wasn't a thing, and right. when you started with vinyl, I got to imagine there were just times where you were learning and you you got frustrated and it it, it it requires a lot of patience and maybe you wanted to give up every now and then because I, that's such a different art form. It was really it was hard for me for one thing because I didn't have my own equipment at the time. The only turntables and mixer that were around were Joel's, and he had them in the store at Turbo Zen Records in Pittsburgh, which was our front to buy records from Europe. Um, so he, he, so I had to go to school, get out of school, go there, wait my turn because there was other DJs, uh, you know, Damien was there, Diesel Boy, he was on those turntables and side two, John Therian and, you know, Finger. And uh, there were all these Saji Fu, all these other guys who, you know, when they were in the, they'd come in, they're like, oh, I'm going to jam, you know, and they'd go through records. And so me being new, these some of these guys were already kind of well-established and knew how to mix and all that, and I would, had, had no clue. So I'd go in there and just jumble beats, and I loved hardcore, so I wanted to play hardcore, so I'm spinning 170 beats per minute and just wrecking the room for everyone that's in there, you know, trying to right. figure it out. Um, but I, I did it for about, I don't know, three weeks straight. I went every day or every other day, and then... Joel was like, "You're ready. You're gonna play at the next party," and I was like, "What? Uh, what?" So, so uh, that was my next question. Actually, was what was your first show ever? I mean, do you remember it, or do you remember um, the bill, or what it was called? Or yeah, like that? I, it was. Let's see. It wasn't Power Rave. That was '92. It was High Voltage. Was okay. the first party I ever played. Yeah. Now, when you, you know, since it was the first one you ever played, first I want to ask, how big was your crowd? Um, probably, ah, uh, God, I, I'm thinking more like, um, probably 
close to a thousand people. Yeah, for your first party, a thousand people. My, <laughs> yeah. my first gig was at the Vortex, and it was probably fifteen people. So, um, a huge difference there. And I can imagine you're probably sweating balls because. Oh yeah, man. You know you can practice as much as you want. You know, especially with vinyl at Turbo Zen or whatever, or like you know anybody else in their bedroom. But when it comes down to playing in front of a bunch of people, you get that tunnel vision. And, you know, if you screw up, people yep. are going to know about it. So my question is, did you screw up on your first gig? Absolutely. Or, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I had some I had some killer mixes and I had some train wrecks. The nice thing about a, that old hardcore is that, you know, the recordings, the, the mixes weren't that good to begin with. You know, so you could get jumbled up and play it off like I'm just getting crazy, man. I'm just gonna go all over the map, you know, and you could kind of play it off. But that's one of the things I love about DJing is because you can still like I was just watching the other day. Uh, uh, Carl Cox was doing a with Adam Beyer or was doing a back to back thing, and they screwed up live. And I'm like, oh, that makes me feel so good, you know. Well, they always and I was told that honestly from a, from when I started, they say you know if you don't have a screw up once in your set, you know that's kind of interesting because we're all human and right. we can all beat match but when it comes down to it sometimes you know maybe a song throws you through a loop or maybe you know you're just not on your a game that day but mm -hmm. it, it's it's interesting how some people at some shows will really be like ooh, you know you screw up and they'll tell you about it and they'll make you feel really small and then there's other promoters and other fans and such that'll be like hey man i really loved your set there was that one part but you know you did a great job so um you know I, and knowing the rave scene is all about positivity the the plur movement so mm -hmm. um it seems like a lot of the onus is is off of you for you know unless you completely train wreck which is a whole different story then right. you probably should just go back and practice um and we all have those stories but uh you know when you when did you decide cuz you know for those that don't know when joe went into mushroom head he was still you know a turntablist and still uh you know doing the vinyl um more of on a sample based uh format but when you left Mushroom Head in in ninety nine, correct? Yeah, ninety nine, two thousand, something like that. Yeah. So when you left and you and you were not doing it professionally anymore, mm -hmm. what you know? How did you remain disciplined to keep your craft from getting you know rusty? Well, uh, after that, I I actually met a guy named Chuck Karnak, who's a local Cleveland guy that was kind of throwing some parties on his own, not necessarily raves. They were more um, art parties basically where he had a bunch of friends that were all artists and my career aside from doing this as an artist um so i would go show my work there and then he would have bands and djs and stuff play so that kind of kept me going along and kept me from not completely falling out of it there was a good stretch after where i didn't do a lot of stuff for a long time you know i had um you know not a bad taste in my mouth for the music scene but you know i felt so displaced going from mushroom head back to the rave scene and i was like this is not the rave scene i remember right um so that was that was kind of hard for me um and then i i think I, I just my thing is that the love of the music and the groove man i i just love that and that that art of of mixing is cool to me you right. know definitely and, and i think that that you know is a testament to how young the electronic genre is because what i've noticed is genres that are younger tend to fluctuate more culturally 
than genres have been around for a long time. You know, rock and roll is, you know, it, it definitely has changed over the years, but the dichotomy of, you know, what EDM or dance music or whatever you want, some people don't like calling it EDM even back, you know, <laughs> in that day, but it just seems that it has moved so drastically. I mean, I started DJing in 2008, and that's not that long ago. Right. And it's completely different. I mean, the genres change, the people change, the way things operate change. Uh, and, you know, I think part of it is because there are a lot of participants. You know, there are a lot of DJs. And when you have a lot of people doing the same thing, you're going to have your challenges. Um, whereas, you know, if you're in a, in a band... There's, you know, there's a lot of bands. So let's not be, you know, let's not kid ourselves here. Mm -hmm. But it's not really. If you took the amount of DJs and the amount of bands, I think there'd be a lot more DJs. I, I would be pretty confident in saying that. So, um, what has to happen to the scene? To, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong right now, but if we're being honest with ourselves, I think the traditional ways were what it was supposed to be always about. Yeah. So, what does it take for the scene to get back to those ways or do you think it ever will i i honestly don't know i hope that it will um in this age of making stupid people famous um it, it, i think that's a lot of the issue i think if people actually knew what they were seeing and knew what they were watching um then they would have a different appreciation for some djs that are out there now who are famous who really don't have all that much skill. Um, they're good at pumping their fists and jumping on tables and <laughs> and doing that kind of stuff. Um, but they're, you know, they're really not that good at DJ. Right. And I, I think, in, again, the festival thing is what killed it, you know. It always blows my mind. Now, even now, you know, I was at Derek Carter on Saturday, and, and these were old heads in there, you know. This was, like, the, the people that I came up with. And watching them look at the dj like like you're watching a band that wasn't a thing and i've never understood that myself yeah. honestly uh, and it's not again some people who know me are going to take this as oh he's an elitist musician but what i've always struggled with is when you're watching a band you're watching you're watching an art form take place not just audibly but visually because a band is all about five people some cases eight or nine people, whatever, working together to create a sound. When you have one person, and you generally most of the time can't even see the decks. Right. You know, you've got a wall there, so you're literally, I mean, you could have a freaking keyboard up there and just be, you don't know. Right. So um, it's it's so much different in that, in that way that, you know, when I went to raves, I never really looked at the mm -hmm. DJ because I just, there was nothing there to look at. Yet people love it for, you know, some DJs are really good hype men, which yeah. is great. Um, but it seems like today it's all about the drop, yeah. you know, you, you could, uh, there's DJs and it's, you know, rinsing is what it's called. And when, when you, you go build to drop, to build, to drop, to build, to drop. And it's like, okay, <laughs> one, I need a break. There's no creativity no, in that. There's no yeah. creativity. And I need a break from banging my head or doing whatever. Right. And, and two, you're kind of, you know, and this might be a hot take, but you're kind of doing a disservice to the producer who made that track because there's so much more to that track right. than you know a build or a drop. And if there's not, then it's not a good track. Right. You know, you need to have those breaks and those different types of, of, of interludes and things in those tunes. And I think they're there because there's kind of a structure to EDM now for the most part. Sure. Know? 
And I think those were put in there to give the crowd a break from all of the craziness. So, you know, playing to your crowd and kind of composing each song to where you're going to get, you know, the best out of your crowd is really important, and I think that's that's lost in a lot of DJs today. Yeah, I, I think that goes back to what you were saying about this generation is instant gratification. They want they want the build and the drop every five minutes because if the music slows down and you've got some space and some headroom in there, they're going to get bored. And that's that's the that for for me that's the time when you turn to your friends and you go, man, this guy's really kicking ass, or hey, let's go get a drink so we can come back for when it's really rocking, but man, that sounds cool, you know? And uh, yeah, uh, if you've ever been to Las Vegas recently and gone to yes. any club, it's it's insanity. Yes. I mean, it's just mix after mix after mix, and it it, it, it makes no sense. Yeah, I, was, I saw uh, Floster Damas in 2016 at uh, the Wynn Club, the one in the middle. Um, it was a lot of fun, and, you know, babes everywhere was great, sure. but... Man, I got tired, you know. <laughs> and that was a that was a I think that was a twenty thousand step day for me because I don't know if anybody's ever been to Vegas, but when you go to Vegas, you do a shit ton of walking, just yeah. so much walking. And I, you know, I didn't want I I wanted to call an Uber home or whatever. It would cost a couple hundred bucks, but I'm like, you know, this is crazy because all I've done the entire set is up and down headbang, and you're drunk, so whatever. Right. But you know, it, it's 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 nice to have have that break. I mean, even. I'm thinking about this. Even metal, really hard metal bands, they have slow songs. <laughs> you right. Know? It's right. not like every song. Or at song least a breakdown. The, right. Or something that, that gets you from, you know, uh, anyways. Um, so back to your story here. When you took that break from playing those art shows and mm -hmm. then getting back into it, what made you, when you got back into it, mm -hmm. or you it, maybe I might have my timeline screwed up, but what made you switch from vinyl to a controller? <laughs> it's actually a pretty funny story um so i was strictly vinyl and i was kind of a snobby vinyl guy i'm just like well why would i use anything else this is what it's you know but it's kind of like going well i invented a new guitar you know that's different you know um well my friend uh penny was getting married and she said we have a dj that's going to be playing your you know, crappy wedding songs and, you know, the electric slide and all that crap. But we're getting married on New Year's Eve and we want you to spin one of your sets at midnight and play till one. Well, that would have been pretty cool. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, man, that sounds killer. And she goes, well, I, I asked her, you know, well, what kind of music, you know, she goes, well, I'd like you to play the stuff you play, but if you can find versions of that music that like more versions of electronic, but more popular songs. And I had no idea where to get vinyl to get what that was, right. you know, like, you know, the Rihanna remix and that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're you know, getting, you're right. The vinyl for that. So I was like, well, shit, I got to go. And that's when I got it, got tractor. And I, because I was like, I was uh, one of the first DJs I ever met and played with was Richie Houghton. And Richie Houghton was pumping tractor at the time. He was like, this is the greatest thing. And he's like, you can spin vinyl, but it's digital. So you can buy MP3s and put it on a record and, you know, play it like you're playing with vinyl. So that's kind of how I got into that. Okay, interesting. And, you know, that really should tell a lot of the people who are in the DJ community that, you know, it's it's okay to be an elitist for a certain type a certain format that you spin on but it doesn't mean that you can't conform to 
you know, what might be technologically superior. Uh, doesn't mean it's, it's a better uh, method overall, but, uh, you know, if you take someone who's, you know, was around in the 90s doing strictly vinyl and the fact that they were able to evolve into a tractor format where you still get people that are like, I, I won't do anything but vinyl, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and it's the same thing with CDJs and such, and, and there are, you know, arguments for both uh, sides. But uh, how, you know, explain to people, and I know a lot of people listening aren't going to really realize this, explain what the scene was like in the 90s from a genre standpoint as far as there was hardcore, there was house, and there was jungle. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it wasn't, you know, there's a gazillion subgenres today. Right. Uh, just kind of go through what what that was like and why it was like that. Um, what, what I kind of noticed and the way the Pittsburgh scene kind of played out in my eyes, you know, somebody might have a completely different version of this, but it, it seemed like kind of like the the metalhead guys that were kind of done with metal or just looking for something else were kind of leaned towards hardcore. You know, it was always the long haired dudes and the guys that loved to smoke weed and, you know, that kind of thing. And it seemed like the hip hop guys, they all liked, they liked breakbeat and they liked jungle. Um, and then you'd get your more artsy guys. And it was kind of in, I don't want to say clicks, but it was like, uh, certain parts of, you know, the social world were into certain kinds of music. And it wasn't until kind of after uh, it, it started to become more readily available and people started getting into those groups kind of started to cross over and, and, you know, oh, I guess I can dig on some jungle, you know. I, when I first came up, I was like, ah, I hate that shit, man. It's just, you know, so jumbled up and just that big bass line running through it. And, you know, and then when once I kind of started to see... You know, Damien is awesome and always has been, and and the way that he could weave a, a tale with tunes was was really cool and really neat to watch. You know, so that kind of you know opened it up. Right, and what's interesting about you in particular is you are one of the few people I know who loves hardcore as much as they love house. You know, those are yeah. such different genres, and I mean, you couldn't pick two two more <laughs> apart genres than those two. So you know why. Why those two, and what about each of them, you know, kind of attracted you, you know, at first? Um, well, I, hardcore for me, obviously, because it's it's the closest thing to metal and electronic music at the time, you know, and a lot of the samples back then, they were, they were sampling metal tunes and that kind of stuff, and I just thought it was awesome, and it was fast and crazy, and, you know, I was going to art school, and I was like, nobody's going to, you know, it, it was the music that I thought no one would want to listen to this, so that's why I liked it. The same reason I kind of got into metal. It's like everybody hates this stuff, but I love it because they hate it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time that I really, like, we used to have a guy named Terry Kicks that used to spin house, and he was, like, old school. Like, he when I was coming up, he was probably, God, I don't know. He might have been my age now. He might have been in his 40s, 45, like that. And he was, like... Um, he was a DJ that played at the Limelight, you know, in New York City, okay. and and he played. He was like a disco DJ, right? And then he started to spin house, and he was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going to do a rave in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, we used to drive on the weekends and go play all over the place. And we went to Madison, Wisconsin one one weekend and went to a small club, and 
I heard this guy spinning this house music and, and, and Hey, it could have been the drugs, man. I don't know, but it just hit me in a spot where I was like, I love the groove and I love the space and the timing of it. And I love the way girls dance the house, man. <laughs> they don't anymore, unfortunately, but yes, I totally get it. And actually, mm-hmm. you know, twerking's all well and good, but mm-hmm. sh- nothing like a girl shuffling. Right. right. There's just, there's, there's, just a, there's a talent to it and mm-hmm. an attraction to it that you, you really can't find. And I agree with you there. It's the, it's the grooviness. You know, I remember I played a Halloween rave once and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty drug free person. Um, but I, I sat at the couch and there is that just that, you know, mm-hmm. that real nice, uh, that bass and everything is just so rhythmic that you, the music is that drug. You just zone out yeah. and you just become one with it. And it's, you know, people will say, well, house, you know, it's so boring. Where's the drop? You know, all those right. you know, hot takes. They're not but, seeing uh, the right DJs. No, they're not, they're, <laughs> that is very true. They're probably not. So, um, you know, the other thing that, you know, I wanted to bring up because this has, caused some heat against me it's always roast ryan <laughs> so um i've always been how do i put this uh, you know i guess an elitist when it comes to instruments over digital i think that guitar playing gut- drums and bass and all you know strings or whatever it's just a different type of um I don't know. I don't know if I'm more passionate about it, but it's just for me. It's just more engaging than than. And you've been in a band and you've been a DJ, so you're a great person to talk to about this. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, as much as I love electronic music, almost any time you have me pick between going to see a, an electronic DJ or a band, I'm probably going to go see the band just because. I connect more, not with the music as far as oh, I like metal more than EDM, but I connect with instruments live more than I do with a DJ live. There's something about listening to a band live that, like I said earlier about house music, actually, but you, you feel it you know, inside you rather than... DJing seems like more of a surface type of, of enjoyment. But talk about that because, you know, I, I've been called out about it more times than I've been agreed with. So. For me, it's, it's two totally different things. Going to see a live band and going to see a DJ, it's two different completely different things to me um again you know i love live music and go to a ton of shows and and that is an experience where you know you can be part of part of what that band's doing you can interact with that band you can you can mosh you can you know socialize you can do whatever and when you go to see a dj you know Again, it depends on why you're there. I mean, if you're there, if you're there to go and socialize, that's your that's your thing, man. But I like to dance, man. I'm an old fat guy, but I love to dance, you know. And, um, you know, I get in that groove and I lose myself a little bit and get out of my own head and get out of my own way and and have a good time. And, you know, I can say that about about live music as well. Um, but it's just it's just different, man. It's a completely different thing. I'm not going to say one is better than the other yeah, one. I'm not saying that yeah. either. I'm I'm really just it's how do I don't want to you know ruffle feathers here, but there is a reason why there are less bands than DJs, especially today. Mm-hmm. You know, this would be a different conversation if vinyl was still the the way to go, and right. you know, digital just didn't wasn't a thing, right? And I'm not taking away from people starting to become a DJ. Everybody should try to be a musician at some point. Um, but 
you know, it's 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 if I feel like there's more merit to playing an instrument, not that it's harder or or less hard, but it takes more practice. Yeah. You know, and and I I think that is why there are so many DJs because as long as you can keep a beat, you can be a DJ today. I'm not saying a right. good DJ. I'm not right. saying a great. You know, I'm just saying you could be a serviceable DJ. And with all the promoters having gigs everywhere, you're going to play out. And you know, as you said, people like David Guetta mm-hmm. or Steve Aoki. And I'm not saying these people didn't work hard to get where they. But it, it's it's much different than if they would have done things the right way. So you yeah. know, it's, it seems like all them cats started the right way, but they got. I don't want to say they got lazy, but they just, you know, why go through the, all that when all they got to do is hit play, right? Exactly. you know, and pump their fist, you know, I mean. It, and who's going to say no to a million dollars to press play? Right. I mean, I don't know if you've watched the Steve Aoki uh, Netflix thing that he had. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's still on there. It was mm-hmm. a documentary about him. And it was interesting because, one, I have no idea that his dad was the uh, founder of Benihana, which is really interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, number two, and I guess his dad was kind of out of the picture for the most part. And when mm-hmm. he was, he was really intimidating and like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if I, if you're worthy of being my son and stuff. Right. So, he, you know, he had his troubles. But nowadays, he's got a private jet and they profiled him. He literally played five gigs in 24 hours. All across the, like the globe, like or mm-hmm. the country, like it was insane, and um, you can't really do that by being a good teacher. Yeah, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's some people out there that could probably pull that off, um, but. I, I don't know. It, maybe it's because I'm a DJ and I can I can you know like we were talking about how you know watching a DJ is kind of weird. I think the only people that can kind of get away with watching a DJ is another DJ because you're kind of going, Oh, how's he pulling that off? You know, what's he doing there? You know, how's he working the, the EQ to get that, you know, and that I, that I do, I will watch, you know, of and, um, if you know what you're looking at and you, you can you can spot talent from a mile away, oh, yeah. and you can spot people that are just touching buttons. And, you I know? Think, and I think that really is the thesis of this conversation: is you can't fake being in a band, right? Yeah, you can have a backing track, but it's really hard to you know people are going to notice if you're not playing guitar. People yeah. are going to notice if you're lip syncing, right? And people don't notice as easily for DJs sure. because you know again they're behind a table, things are covered up. Um, and most people don't know what any of that equipment no, does. Of course, it's a bunch of buttons. It's kind of yeah. looking at a, a cockpit of an airplane. Right. Like, Holy crap. Right. Um, you know, it, it's an event. Sometimes at these festivals, they will have these cameras that are above the booth, and you'll see the DJ. And if you're yeah. a DJ, you're like, he's not doing anything. Yeah. All those channels are down. This yeah. is like, this is stupid. But uh, shameful. It is. It's very <laughs> shameful. Um, but. You know, I think that's really why I have that thought process is because there's an that, that's the word I've been looking for. There's an authenticity to being a musician of a real instrument that occasionally you don't get with being a, 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 a digital DJ these days. So, um, you know, I, I find that I find that really interesting. But uh, the the final thing I wanted to talk about was. When you, because I'm going through this right now, the opposite. But when you transitioned from being a DJ to being in a band called Mushroomhead, that for those that don't know, ended up being very successful very quickly. Um, yeah. 
today, unfortunately. We won't go there. Um, but uh, it, it must have been a really big adjustment to go from something where people aren't watching you and are you're not the center of attention, so to speak, mm-hmm. to being a part of a band that not only you're the center of attention, but this band is playing all over the country and you know, selling thousands of records and, and, and it's just a totally different kind of, uh, uh, eye opening experience. Yeah. Um, for me, the transition was not that different from playing in front of a bunch of people. Like I was used to that. That wasn't a a thing. Um, you, but the first shows with mushroom head, you know, I, I wasn't at the first show when they opened for Guar. Um, uh, Skinny and Jeff had come to Pittsburgh and seen me play at a rave prior to that and talked to me and, you know, asked me if I was ever going to be, you know, in Cleveland again because I told him I was from there. And I had seen Hatrix as a kid and um, and I said, no, I'm not going to be moving back. And, you know, shit happens. And I ended up moving back and and uh, Marco Vuk, who was, you know, in the band at the time, um, was one of my buddies. We went to school together in Pittsburgh and um, – he was like, you know, hey, stop by the jam room. And that was after the first show. And that's kind of when Skinny was like, well, bring your stuff down. Let's see what, you know, we can do. So we messed around and, you know, I used to just kind of sit in on it and go through the help, go through the samples and figure it out. You know, Skinny was kind of the mastermind behind all that because he's like mega movie buff and loves all those weird avant-garde movies and found all those great samples and stuff. Um, but it, it was fast, man. It went it went from, you know, getting booed off the stage in their first show with Guar to the second show at Trilogy, and people just went, whoa, what the hell is this? And then after that, it, it I think it was maybe within two to three shows after that, we pretty much sold out every show we played in Cleveland after that for the next decade. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah definitely. And, and yeah. I, think, I think one of the, the, the problems... And again, I'm experiencing this in opposite, but well, maybe not, I guess. One of the problems is that as a DJ, you are in control of everything. You're sure. in control of your own brand. You're in control of all the music. You're in control of all the things. When you join a band, it's no longer just you. Mm-hmm. It's a whole collective of people, and you kind of have to do what's best for the band, not necessarily what's best for you. And a lot of times there's a huge difference between what's best for you and what's best with the band for the band. And sometimes you have to appease people. Sometimes you have to uh, put your foot down certain things. Sometimes you have to back off certain things. Right. So, you know, not being in that kind of environment before, was it hard to pull back? I mean, you, you, you know, you were, you were the DJ of the band. So right. it was a little bit different, but yeah. at the same time, you're still a part of it and you want to feel a part of it. So was there times, and I know you're you're not an egotistical person, but was there times that you were like, you know, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing this work. I'd like to be more involved in this or this or these decisions and and, and such like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, at that time, uh, we, you know, the bottom line is, you know, it, it's always been Skinny's band. You know, it was kind of his baby from the get go. And at that time, he was really open to you know, what do you got, man? Let's, let's, let's make something cool. Um, so being, you know, out of art school, I was like, well, you know, let's make banners, let's do this, let's make giant fake mushrooms. Let's, you know, and, 
I was doing freelance work at the time and doing some sculpture work around town. And after we would do, I'd do these, I did giant sculptures of the guardians from the bridge downtown Cleveland. And I was able to finagle them from the people that I built them for. Um, and we ended up using those on stage for years and then actually had them crumble at Blossom. We oh rigged gosh. them to crumble down during a, during a big hit. And I think in never let it go or something like that. And, um, yeah, everybody back then was open to creativity, man, and everybody kind of jumped in, and and I kind of fell away from the DJ thing, you know, after the the second album, and and more became a, a part of the production, right. um, running lights and making everything look the way it should look, you know, right. um, so yeah, that that kind of became my role, and I kind of like that, you know, because again i was behind a board you know yeah, running oh, exactly. uh, you know yeah, the limelight yeah. wasn't uh you know if you screwed up right as many people noticed but, right um <laughs> no that, that's that's pretty cool mm -hmm. um my last question to you before we wrap it up you know it's not often that someone who's been through it, it all in the dj world such as yourself um gets to talk to what i'm hoping is a lot of people in my generation who are djs that are listening mm -hmm. so you know, I'm sure you'd be you'd admit as I'd admit, you know, mistakes are made along the way and they make you stronger as a DJ. But what can advice can you give to those, whether it's a DJ starting out today, that's that's my age or, you know, a DJ that's getting big and and, you know, has a fork in the road and needs to go one way or the other way. What is the best thing you can tell them to, you know, remain disciplined, not sell out, uh but at the same time, balance that with becoming the successful DJ that they want to be. Uh, honestly, I, I think for me, you know, I, I've done a lot of things and I've never burned any bridges. Um, I've never, you know, been like, well, that dude's an asshole. That dude's a dick. Or, you know, I, I think just be cool, man. Just be kind and, and, and treat people the way you want to be treated because, you know, the, the ego thing, it only gets you so far before it'll burn you. Um, so I, I, you know, practice and just be cool, man. <laughs> right. Oh, dude, it's, that's the truth. I mean, you, you, you don't want to burn bridges. Um, you know, I manage artists for a living and that's something I tell them every day and you can drill it into people's head, but emotion sometimes gets the better of all of us and a bridge is burnt and then you wonder why your career never took off. And I've dealt with that personally and I've had people deal with that personally. So that's, some really solid advice all, all goes back to plur man peace oh, yeah. love unity and respect there you go <laughs> awesome well i appreciate joe uh for his time today being on our first ever podcast this is going to go down in history in you know the rock and roll hall of fame and awesome. all kinds of stuff i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna take a page out of the tomahawk podcast uh joe is not the biggest football fan and he'll he'll, he'll <laughs> tell everybody that but uh i listen to the tomahawk podcast it's uh joe thomas and andrew hawkins the browns guys and they kind of inspired me to make this podcast. And what they do, and I, I'm going to start doing this too because I find this hilarious. Every time they have a guest on, mm -hmm. like a quarterback or something, they'll say, the greatest quarterback of all time, <laughs> Brady Quinn. Like, mm -hmm. it'll be something, right. you know, and it's just, it's just an elaboration. So I am super happy to have the greatest DJ <laughs> of all time on my podcast, Joe Lanky. I got promoted. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So I really appreciate you being on here. Um, Please subscribe, like, rate five stars. We're, you know, we're on Spotify, iTunes, all the above. 
Uh, next episode, we will be talking a little bit of punk music with a career drummer and lifelong friend of mine, Ian Douglas. So stay tuned for that. Um, and I will talk to you all next time. We'll <laughs>